Welcome to this episode of the Education Revolution Podcast. On this episode, Jerry interviews Charles Eisenstein about paradigm shifts in human thinking, education, his books, and Donald Trump's effect on education. So, uh, today we are fortunate to have Charles Eisenstein uh, on our podcast, on our third podcast, and I've known Charles for quite a while. He's been a presenter at Aero Conferences, and he's just into so many interesting areas. His essays are very well read. He travels and speaks around the world. Uh, it almost seems to me like you almost never stop traveling. <laughs> Uh, so, Charles, um, wh- wh- where have you been to lately? I just got back from Brazil, actually. Okay, and, wh- and what were you doing there? Uh, the usual, you know, speaking, and um, it was a little bit different than usual. I, you know, went to some favelas and and spoke there a little bit, and kind of um, and attended a gathering about gift culture and. My book, one of my books launched in Portuguese, and I spoke at that, and, you know, just, I don't know, I went to the beach. That was cool. Okay, that's nice. Yeah, I guess it's summer there, right? Almost something like that, yeah. Uh, I haven't been to Brazil yet. I'd like to get there at some point. The the kids only go to school half a day there. Really? Yeah, it's quite, quite free. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. And how does that work out? I don't know. People seem to be pretty laid back there, so it's working out pretty well. I mean, um, and they certainly have their share of amazing intellectuals, too. So, you know, you can't see that their society is half as dumb, you know, half as smart because they have half as much school. (laughs) Well, we we have uh, some schools, uh, several around Sao Paulo. Uh, Uh There are Aero schools, Aero members that are in Brazil. Um, and so when you travel around, uh, of course, you'd speak about quite a variety of things. Uh, would you say there's a commonality? Yeah. I mean, everything is kind of under the same framework of a shift in our stories or a shift in our mythology uh, from a story of separation, the liberal subject, the, the separate self in a world of other um, separation from community, from nature, and so on, to a story of interconnection, interdependency, interbeing, uh, reunion. And so then I'll kind of apply that to whatever field that I'm investigating or speaking about. So it could be uh, the money system and economics, it could be politics, it could be education, um, medicine, um, religion, whatever, you know, because my my basic view is that civilization is undergoing a transition right now that is born through multiple crises in all of these areas. Everything I named, you know, economics, politics, education, healthcare, uh, ecology, most of all, everything is experiencing a parallel crisis. And this is no coincidence. So that's that's the the unifying theme of all the things I talk about. That's interesting. And speaking of transitions and maybe crisis, I don't know, uh, you've written a little bit about uh, Trump's election lately. Uh, Why do you think he was elected? 
Uh, you know, like I read different views on why he was elected, and I tend to find myself agreeing with whichever one I'm reading. But ultimately, I think that to assign it to just bigotry and misogyny and, you know, all these white males voted for Trump because they hate blacks or they hate women or they're, et cetera, et cetera. I find that that is a kind of dehumanizing and belittling um, uh, viewpoint that that dodges uh, or leaves unexamined uh, deeper wellsprings of discontent with the system. So these would include the decades-long effects of neoliberal capitalism, for example, um, and the general failure of not only the American dream, but the dream of technology, the, the technologically utopian dream, the idea that the, the conviction that we had in the 50s, for example, that things were going to get better and better thanks to the uh, blessings of our gods called science and technology. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't happened. And, and the application of science and technology to multiple fields of endeavor, I mean, one after another has given way to that particular scientific approach, um, which starts with quantification. Uh, so including education uh, has been at least attempted to be brought into the realm of science. This was supposed to bring us great benefits, but it hasn't. So this is just one example of the um, deep discontent and alienation that comes out as like this big rejection um, of the system. What, what, do you people, you know, what, what do you think about the push for technology and education? I mean, what's technology, you know? Uh, anything that human beings do with their hands could be called technology. So I'm not really talking about technology in the classroom and whether we should have computers in the classroom and stuff like that. I mean, I might have opinions on that, but what I was really talking about is the uh, scientific mindset, which is interlinked with the reductionistic uh, industrial mindset that has been applied to education. That's what we need to leave behind. So the standardized tests, the standardized classrooms, the uh, manipulation of human motivation through conditional rewards and punishments, um, the uh, generic curricula, the general attempt to indoctrinate people into a standard narrative that has become obsolete, like all that stuff. Well, can you expand on that a little bit, the, the standard narrative that has become obsolete? Well, yeah, I mean, most of it's, it's like a fantasy world, you know, the, the, the history and civics that people learn in school. So, and, and also not that, not only that, but the way of making decisions, the, the imp, implicit uh, teachings on here's how to be a human being. Um, school, and I know like a lot of people listening to this, they're not, their kids aren't even in normal schools, you know, so in a way I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. Maybe I shouldn't spend too much time on a general critique of, uh, you know, conventional schooling. Um, but it's, 
you know, a lot when you go to school, you get acculturated to the culture that validates and legitimizes school and, and um, partakes in its system of rewards. And when, when you step out of that, you're stepping out of a lot more than a certain curriculum. You're also stepping out of an acculturation. So in, like in the case of my kids, um, they are, you know, not, they haven't done college prep. Uh, and so all the questions of, well, how are they going to get a good job in this society come up? So only if you reject as well that entire narrative about here's how to live a good life or a secure life or a prosperous life, only if you reject that can you fully embrace alternative schooling. Otherwise, it's not going to be that alternative. You know, If it's going to steer people toward the same quantifiable achievements or systemically validated achievements that normal school is, then you're not doing anything that different. And I don't want to make it black and white here. There are certainly degrees of separation. Um, you know, there's a spectrum from standard public school all the way out to you know, free schools or home um, uh, unschooling and, and things like that. But um, to the extent that you depart from the conventional system and its rewards, you're also rejecting a conventional life. Well, I'm, I might disagree with that somewhat because it's been my experience that students who uh, went to um, democratic schools, uh, unschooling, homeschooling, and so on, have actually had virtually no trouble uh, adapting to college if they wanted to go. Uh, and in fact, the colleges just love to have those kids. They even don't worry about diplomas in a lot of cases because they've discovered they do so well. They have not lost their love of learning. And and uh, so, so that actually is one thing that sometimes surprises me. Well, it's not that they, you know, are incapable of performing, but it's that their value system is very likely to not be, so it depends. Like, I mean, sometimes they just don't even bother recording the kinds of achievements that look good on your resume. And other times they do, but their um, ambitions and motivations are no longer aligned with those that um, are offered. I mean, this is, I guess maybe I'm speaking a lot about my own kids, you know. I have a 20-year-old and an 18-year-old, both very, very bright. Neither of them are in college. Um, the older one might go. The younger one is, has forsworn uh, anything resembling higher education. Um, so, you know, take my older son, Jimmy. Um, he's looked at the idea of going to a university. He's hung out at... NC State a bit, you know, or whatever. Um, he he gets it, and he's like, you know, this seems stupid to me. It's it's <laughs> it's all this Mickey Mouse bullshit. I'm not interested in this. Um, so he's looking into maybe like some alternative schools. He's looked into a few. None of them are radical enough, you know. Maybe he'll end up somewhere um, that's on kind of these edges, and find a home there. Now, there may be kids who go to democratic free schools who really are interested in math or physics or something like that and do end up, I mean, there are some things that the conventional system does pretty well. 
Um, if you want to become a mathematician, you should probably go to university, you know. But uh, generally, so just to take my son as an example, um, it's not that he's intellectually incapable or that his, you know, he lacks the public school training that would have, I mean, come on, you know, what it's thin gruel that they dish out there. But it's that he's just in his values and motivation not aligned with with what that system offers. So if he does go to university, it's going to be a very alternative place that also isn't going to make him prepare him for a job in the machine. So that's okay because the machine is falling apart and there is more and more space on the margins of the machine um, outside the mainstream to live a beautiful and fulfilling life. So I'm not worried about them. But all I'm saying, and, and maybe generalizing too much from the example of my kids, all I'm saying is that you re- a lot more goes along with it when you reject conventional education. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, you wrote a book called "More: uh, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. Yeah. Do you think this might have anything to do with Trump's election? <laughs> that book? <laughs> you mean, is it to blame? I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not really kidding. In other words, I think there are some people who are just unhappy with the status quo, and so they're thinking, okay, well, let's just go with anything different. Yeah. I think a lot of people are, yeah, have exactly that mindset. Um, people voted for Trump without really believing that he would do the things that he said he would do. He, they were almost like voting for um, the anti-establishment brand yeah. with Trump. And some of the outrageous things that he said were merely signifiers of his non-participation in conventional politics. Right, right. That's You think how people might have taken it that way. Okay, some, this, this some, is a, not a normal politician. I like him. Yeah. Now, of course, yeah, he's crass. He's inappropriate. You know. Now, of course, some people, I'm sure, do resonate with his... Uh, you know, racist and misogynistic comments. Um, like I'm not, I'm not, you know, denying that that exists, but I don't think that we can say, oh, the problem is racism. Racism is powered by inequality and by despair and by um, uh, discontent, and it's not just like you know, white privileged people who want to be even more privileged and resent sharing the wealth with other people. It's that we have a system that's economically set up to uh, propel increasing uh, polarization of wealth, uh, inequality, um, lowering standards of living. Um, uh, you know, the, the, there is good reason. In, 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 in like the 50s, you could be a factory worker and support a family of four on one salary and have paid vacations and a swimming pool in your backyard. You know, like an auto worker could do that. Yeah. And, and with a high school education. And that is so unreachable for most people, even with a college education today. We're, but, you know, we were supposed to be getting richer. Yeah. And, it, and in various inchoate ways, People are getting that something is really wrong here. Mm-hmm. They don't resonate with the system anymore or with the, with the elites. 
Well, what you wrote a book called Sacred Economics. Uh, just, you know, could you summarize what that's about and how that may relate to this? Sacred Economics is about, um, it starts with the question, why does money so often seem to be the enemy of all that's good, true, and beautiful? <laughs> you know, you look at, at any aspect of the system that bothers you, fracking or uh, school privatization or prison privatization or the war in Iraq or whatever it is, and you ask, why is this happening? Clear cutting the rainforest, et cetera. And a couple levels of why down, you always get to money. So the question is, why should it be that way when money is merely an agreement among human beings about symbols that invest those symbols with value? Money doesn't exist outside of human agreements. It's a story. And why then have we created a story that makes, that incentivizes everything that is oppressing people and destroying the planet. And could we write a different story? So the book explains what exactly it is about the money system that has turned money into what it is and um, why there's uh, an unsolvable crisis built into that and what money could look like if it were based on different agreements that themselves are grounded in uh, a story of reunion do you see any movement in, in that direction? Well, I see certainly a lot of signs that the money system is breaking down. <sighs> um, and yeah, like on the margins, um, people are, there is movement toward um, different conceptions of economy and well-being and um, business. But I can't, you know, point to any examples of a place on earth where sacred economy is being practiced, except maybe, you know, some hunter-gatherer tribes or very traditional indigenous people. Uh -huh. But how do you scale it up? You know, that's the, that's the question. Um, just to totally change the subject, you've written a little bit about nonverbal cues. And I wonder if you noticed anything from our candidates in this election along those lines. Nonverbal cues. Yeah, things that gestures and so on, what they mean. What 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 do you mean by nonverbal cues? Uh, I'm not sure what context I, I, I use that phrase. Well you talk uh, about why you like to speak in person, for example. Oh right. Yeah. So about first about the candidates. Um you know, I didn't actually watch the debates, watch any speeches, you know. I was pretty uh I didn't get like deeply wrapped up in the whole election trauma. So I, I don't. So you didn't really have... notice anything in particular. I've, I've seen some analyses of these, but I thought yeah. maybe you had some, no, no, some no. take on that. So, no. so where do you think this is going? Where do you think this is going? What do you, I, I, you know, somebody said a while back that they couldn't imagine the day after the election. Well, I think a lot of people didn't. And, now it's kind of hard to imagine what happens after the inauguration, let alone what's going to happen a year or two from now. What, what, do you have any feeling about it? Well, Hillary Clinton would have been a much more effective administrator of American empire than Donald Trump. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, Hillary Clinton would have been more competent in keeping the system running. Um, 
Trump, you know, it's a, he's a bit of a loose cannon, but given his appointment so far, nothing very radical is going to happen. Um, the system has so much inertia that the leeway that a president has to do anything very much different is limited, even in the United States. And we saw this, uh, and we see it all the time in other countries where, say, Greece, for example, where, you know, Syriza gets elected uh, with a real commitment to um, ending austerity and breaking free of the neoliberal control of their economy. But they were unable to do that because the outside pressures were too strong. And those pressures, um, not only from international financial markets, but from the deep state, the foreign policy establishment, and other vested interests, they will be bearing on Donald Trump as well. So not to mention that, and, and he doesn't have really strong ideology as far as I can tell, um, his beliefs are mostly beliefs in himself. Mm -hmm. um, his, you know, his, he doesn't seem to have strong, um, ideological. Or, or coherent, yeah, any coherent ideology. So that would make him, uh, quite easily manipulated or influenced by people who do come in with strong ideologies. So, you know, like I, as far as like the, some of the outrageous stuff that he's talked about, a wall and deportations and stuff, I don't think that much is going to change. The change will come only through people's reactions to it, uh, uprisings against it. Like that's where the hope is. But <clears throat> those on the right who are expecting new things from Donald Trump, they're going to be disappointed. Right. Uh, those on the left might be more motivated to oppose some of the outrages that'll happen and they wouldn't have been so motivated under Clinton and they weren't under Obama. I mean, you know, we've had eight years, well, I mean, more than that, but of uh, like, you know, more and more fracking, droning, bombing, war, um, uh, pushing the interests of Wall Street. I mean, the Obama administration hasn't deviated significantly from the policies of his predecessors. And Clinton wouldn't have deviated either. And neither will Donald Trump too much. He's, he can do some showy things, but um, so on the good side and the bad side, both, he's going to be more helpless than people believe and more helpless than people fear. I, I thought it was interesting that that they just had a meeting with Gore uh, and Iv Ivanka, who seems as if she does believe in global warming, and he says he doesn't. He says he doesn't, but in 2009 he said he did. You know, who knows what he actually believes? <laughs> okay. I don't and even know if he knows what he believes. You so, know? so it almost sounds like you think that the, what influence is going to be is going to be who he surrounds himself with. Yeah. And it doesn't look good. You know, some of the people he's been surrounding himself with. But who knows? You know, I think that the most significant political event of this year has been at Standing Rock, not in the Electoral College. So I'm, you know, wanting to get more involved on things on that level and less involved in the show of electoral politics. Well, I guess... Not, not that I'm, you know, 
Yeah, I thought that was interesting, but I thought I just heard that Trump said he was going to go ahead and and to get the uh, Army Corps of Engineers to change that and let the pipe go through. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sh- sure he's, uh, you know, much more sympathetic to the pipeline than Obama was. Since he owns shares in it. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, he's kind of this red meat, you know, like, um, make America great again, you know, of course we should be pumping oil. So the, uh, right. The water, water protectors definitely. So, so, so what do you, what do you know anything about the education secretary? uh, No. Betsy DeVos? No. You want to tell me anything? (laughs) No. I mean, I mean, she is, she's, uh, comes from a kind of a, a right-wing orientation and seems like she'd move in the direction of privatization of education and all that. But, um, and I don't know. Of course, the Arrow is in an interesting situation in that we like all sorts of alternatives, anything that's learner-centered and good for kids. So that includes public alternatives if they have that, public schools or independent ones too. But who know we again we don't know what that's going to mean for education yeah uh you know the word conservative when it's applied to education it could mean you know stuff like prayer in schools or or you know getting evolution out of the curriculum or that kind of <laughs> nonsense uh or it could mean dismantling the public school system as we know it which would be more maybe a more libertarian uh, twist on it, uh, but probably privatization would mean funneling profits toward uh, rich, rich corporations. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, what 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 I would like to see? I mean, geez, I mean the entire rethinking of the school system. I mean, I think people would be would be better off if we just ended it completely <laughs> and shut down all the schools. And then, okay, then let's rebuild. What do we want to uh, create from zero? And maybe we would end up going back to the schools or something. But Well, maybe, uh, you, maybe know, you should uh, put your name in for education secretary. Hey, man, I, <laughs> for the, I, I was waiting for the phone call, and then when I heard you were pointing someone else, I was just... <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, yeah. So it sounds like overall... Um, you're not overly optimistic or pessimistic about what's going to happen under new, the new President Trump. You think he's actually not as free to do what he wants to do because of the momentum of, of our whole orientation? And uh, Right. Yeah. How would you characterize your overall feeling about what's going to happen? Or Yeah. I'm not particularly afraid of Donald Trump doing outrageous, awful things. Uh, I just don't think he has that much power to do that. You know, even people talk about, well, what if he launches World War III? I, I just feel like those scenarios are um, just so alarmist and just ways of uh, giving expression to deep fear and indignation. Um And even if, you know, anyway, basically I think that it'll be more of the same, 
only uh, more erratic and um, that the level of public opposition, I, I think that the unraveling of the system will accelerate under Donald Trump. And that's a good thing. And that is not saying to sit back and let it happen, but to be part of that unraveling, part of the resistance to the uh, policies that are you know, propelling us over a cliff, um, the resistance to, uh, to all kinds of injustice that's happening. Um, so I think it's, it's a great opportunity, you know, to, to reawaken real democracy that it, because it's become so obvious that electoral politics has failed us. And I think that even those who voted for Trump, it's going to become obvious to them too, that it's failed them when nothing much changes, you know, like how extreme can you get like in your rejection of of the system to elect someone like Donald Trump and still not much changes. So that will provide impetus to go much deeper uh, back to the drawing board or, or to um, be, it'll create openness to uh, a much more radical overhaul of the political system, which of course could go two ways. One way is it could go toward uh, fascism uh, and, and, you know, dystopia, uh, but it could also go the other way, and that—that's the challenge before us: is to turn it toward, turn it in the direction of of the beautiful things that we've seen growing in the margins, the things around you know direct democracy and um, nonviolent communication techniques and uh, truth and reconciliation. And I mean, there's incredible ideas out there uh, and different models of governance and radical rethinks of all of our institutions. So things could go in a really beautiful way. And I think that, that we have to um, hold out for that. So, and, so you see it as an opportunity and that we should seize the day. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's going to get messy. Thanks a lot, Charles, for being on our third podcast. And we, I really appreciate it and I very much enjoy your work. Thanks, Jerry. Uh, do you want to give a website for people to go to? CharlesEisenstein.net. CharlesEisenstein.net. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.